It's all right, kids. You'll get to hear about locusts today. So yes, we are turning now to start a series on the book of Joel. The book of Joel, uh, this will be page 760 if you're using the Bibles here at the church. Page 760, Joel is towards the beginning of the Minor Prophets. If you just, if you find like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you keep turning right a little bit, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, page 760. It will be projected, but I, I, I would suggest you look it up in your Bibles or on your phones just because it's a longer passage, so you'll want to be able to refer to it. Joel chapter 1. Um, the book of Joel, you know, we don't know much about Joel except that his name is Joel, his father's name is Pethuel, and then what, whatever we can gain, we can glean from reading the book. Uh, three short chapters. That's about what we know about Joel. And in terms of the, when the book was written, even there, we're not totally certain. Uh, it's fun to kind of, as you, as you read it, as you look through it, be thinking, hmm, if this is true, then it couldn't have been that time during Israel's history, but maybe it was around here, and scholars like to do that, and probably the majority of them believe that it was probably written after the exile, the exile was 586 B.C., so after that, when the remnant had come back to the land of Israel and rebuilt the temple, that's where the majority of scholars think, but there are other suggestions as well. Um, so we're not totally certain when it was written, but it has a clear and urgent message. So I hope it will be a blessing to you as we study it the next couple weeks. Let me begin with prayer. Oh Lord, we pray that you would teach us as we listen to your words through the prophet Joel. May they be a warning to us. May they be an encouragement to seek you and to know you through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Open our hearts and our minds to hear, to understand, and to worship. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so Joel, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. 
The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off from before our eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. In 1874, the largest locust swarm ever recorded in the United States swept across the Midwest. The number of locusts was estimated at 120 billion. It covered about 2 million square miles, which is an area equal to Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont. People describe them as descending like a snowstorm. There were places where they blocked out the light of the sun for six hours. And once they landed, they ate, quote, everything but the mortgage. After destroying the fields and the gardens, they began shredding clothing, curtains, eating the leather harnesses off the horses and the livestock, the wool off the sheep, the paint off the wagons and the handles off the pitchforks. When they left, even their dead bodies polluted the wells and the lakes. One New York Times correspondent wrote, they beat against the houses, swarm in at the windows, cover the passing trains. They work as if sent to destroy. Why does the Lord send such disasters upon the earth? We don't see locust swarms in the U.S. anymore, but in areas of Africa or the Middle East, they remain a major threat. 
the prophet Joel, he's writing in the aftermath of a disaster like this one. His words are not his own. Verse 1, they are the words of the Lord. And the Lord says through Joel that the day of disaster is a warning. Now, I don't know if you need a warning today, but I believe that God is guiding the preaching of his word here at our church. And so whether you are young or old, whether you've been a member here your whole life or you are visiting with us today, uh, whether you know much about the Bible or, or only just a little bit, these words are useful to you. Joel begins by saying, hear this. And then he says, tell this to your children. So listen to God's warning to you today. And my first point will be the disaster. The disaster. So verse 4 describes the beginning of this disaster. It starts with these locusts. Maybe this is the thing you knew about the book of Joel before we started in our series of it. Joel has these vivid descriptions of locusts. Uh, here, he uses four different words for locusts, and probably they refer to different life stages in their life cycle. Uh, Hebrew actually has 10 different words for grasshoppers and locusts. So that gives you an idea of how common they were in their world. We'll see in next week in chapter 2 that this, this locust army actually begins to take on a figurative meaning. It, it, it becomes an image for something even bigger that Joel wants to talk about. But here in chapter 1, Joel is he's probably describing a real locust swarm. Now, if you guys don't know what a locust looks like, uh, Sarah has an image for us that she's going to pull up. There's a locust. It looks pretty much like a grasshopper, and in fact, it is. They are grasshoppers. But see, what happens is when conditions are right, they actually begin to change their behavior, and they reproduce exponentially, and, and they, they, they become, they, they swarm and they become uh, like an army. But the locusts are not the only thing these people are dealing with because as a result of these locusts, we see there's a famine. Uh, and then uh, on top of that, and again, perhaps connected to the locusts, but maybe, maybe a further uh, problem for them is this drought, right? So in verse 12, uh, verse 12 describes these plants that are all drying up. And verse 17 talks about the seed shriveling under the dirt. Uh, and, then, and then finally, to add to it all, verses 19 to 20 appears to describe wildfires. Uh, now, this actually could be a just very vivid description of this locust plague because when grasshoppers, when they turn into these locust plagues, they actually go through physiological changes where they turn yellow. Uh, and so Sarah, if you want to show us the next picture there. So these, uh, you can't see the color super great, but they are yellow in this picture. They're uh, yellow because they have made it to this final adult stage. And if you want to go to the next picture there, Sarah. So here you can see, here's a swarm of them. Okay, so this is atypical for grasshoppers. They're usually solitary. But when, they, when a lot of them get together, they start to actually change their behavior. They become gregarious, and they swarm. So they're swarming this tree, and you can't actually see it, but there's one right on the left trunk that's yellow because he has reached the final stage. They, uh, 
they molt, they shed their outer shell about once a week until they reach this final adult stage. And if you can go to the next one, here you can see on the ground all the yellow there, those are locusts. And so you can begin to imagine how they could actually look like a wildfire covering the vegetation, the plants, and the trees. So perhaps uh, this is just a vivid description of fire. But of course, at this point, we also have a lot of dead and dried out vegetation, so it could very well be describing a real wildfire. The point of all of this, right, is this is a disaster. It's a disaster. Verse 10, the ground mourns. Uh, verses 18 and 20, the beasts groan. The, the livestock are perplexed. And the question, of course, is why? Right? Isn't that what we ask when disaster strikes? Why is this happening? Why now? Why to us? I think most of us would be pretty nervous to give the answer that Joel gives here, but then Joel has an advantage. He is a prophet speaking God's words. So he doesn't have any problem saying, this is happening because we have sinned. Now, he's very urgent about this, but he's also gentle in a way. You won't actually find him saying directly here, this is happening because we have sinned. But what does he say? Just, just look through, circle, he has all these commands he gives. And if you just look at the commands he gives, hear, awake, lament, be ashamed, wail, put on sackcloth, lament, wail, Consecrate a fast. Call the people together. Call a column, a solemn assembly. Cry out. And then in chapter 2, we'll see next week, return. Return. What does this tell us about where these people are? They're far from the Lord. They've turned away from Him. They have forgotten their God. They have forgotten the one who gave them all these good things that they have now lost. They've left the one who made them his bride. They have turned away from their redeemer. They've embraced his gifts, but dismissed the giver. Moses is not so gentle about what happens when God's people forget him, and so that's why I asked Jim to read those terrifying verses from Deuteronomy 28 uh, earlier in the service, where Moses tells the people of God, this is what will happen if you forget your God. Among many other disasters, and we did not even read them all, the locusts will eat your crops. And now, Joel comes, like Jonah to the Ninevites, except to God's people, with a warning. With a warning. He uses a lot more words than Jonah, and part of what he does is he describes the effects of this disaster on, on, the, on the lives of different groups of people there. In the land. And so he wants them to see look, guys, you are at a crisis point. This is a crisis. You need to see why the Lord has brought you here. 
So let's turn to my second point, the crisis. The crisis. There's actually a pattern here. You may have noticed it. Um, there's a pattern to the way he's describing things. He, he issues a command or two to a specific group, and then he does some description of the disaster, and then he turns and he issues another command or two to another group in Israelite society, and then he again proceeds to describe the disaster back and forth, back and forth. It's all part of an attempt to wake them up. He wants them to see what is so obvious to him, but apparently not to the people of Israel. So let me show you this. In verses 2 to 3, right, he calls on the elders and the inhabitants to hear and to tell their children. This is the broadest group. This is basically everybody, right? Uh, and then in verse 4, he begins to describe the disaster. What's going on? He wants their eyes to look at what's happening. And then in verse 5, he targets his first group, right? The drunkards and the drinkards of wine. The drunkards are those who are addicted to something that allows them to escape this life. And the drinkers of wine, uh, perhaps, are those who uh, are not addicted to wine itself, but uh, simply to the enjoyment of pleasure. They like a good wine. They like a good drink. But what these people trusted in Joel says, has been cut off from their mouth. They relied upon the wine for joy in this life, and when something is taken away from you, well, that's when you figure out whether it's an idol or not. A severe mercy, C.S. Lewis calls this, when the Lord comes and he lays waste to something that you trusted in, something you lived for, some of you may have read the story of Sheldon Van Auken. Sheldon was a friend of Lewis's, and uh, he sought to build with his wife, Davy, a relationship so intimate, so strong, that nothing could ever come between them. Nothing could possibly destroy this relationship until the Lord took his wife away. And Sheldon realized he had made an idol out of a blessing. A severe, severe disaster. But for him, what needed to happen to teach him never to replace the giver with the gifts. And don't we do this as well? We're like children who tell the father who just gave us a birthday present, I don't need you. I've got my Spider-Man action figure. Right? How foolish and short-sighted is that? And yet, we do it, don't we? Like, like drunkards with things that help us to escape a life we don't like. Or like pleasure seekers filling our minds with, with and our taste buds and our moments with, with more and more of the good things of life. But when the Lord cuts those things off, well, that is a moment of severe mercy. He's calling out to you to wake up and wail and cry out. Well, Joel moves on. In verses 6 to 7, 
He gives more description, right? Following this pattern that he's building. Uh, and then he returns with another command in verse 8. Lament. Lament. And this one is unique because he's not, he's not speaking to a specific group of people. Rather, he uses a specific image to explain what this disaster the Lord has brought on them is like. He says it's like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Now, this is a very powerful, powerful image. Just think about this. Here's a woman. She's about to be married, okay? And think about what she's anticipating. Life, security, comfort, uh, a family, children, a role in society, all these things. Uh, but, but just before she's about to put on that white wedding gown, her bridegroom is snatched away from her. And instead, she picks up sackcloth. All that she had been looking to for significance, for meaning, for purpose, it's gone in a flash. Maybe you can relate to this moment. Maybe this is a moment you never got to enjoy and you're bitter. Or maybe you got it and it is not delivered. Recently, I've been commuting to work on my bicycle, and I think my wife, Jana, thinks a bit more about the fragility of my life. And so this past week, she actually said to me, she's realized that my life is really just a wisp of smoke. Now, I don't know how I feel about my life being compared to vapor, but of course, she's right. And recognizing that fact without giving in to the fear of it, but just being grateful for whatever time she has that breath of smoke by her side, that is an act of trust that denies idolatry power over her life. It keeps her from replacing the giver with the gift. Joel next addresses farmers. Verse 11, he's got more description there, verses 9 and 10, right? And then verse 11, he says, Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers. These are the hardest workers in Israelite society. Some would argue farmers are the hardest workers in any society, right? They are proud of being hard workers. But now... They've got nothing to show for all their hard labor. Everything that gave them meaning and purpose, what got them up early in the morning, what kept them going after the sunset, it's gone. Even the leather harnesses eaten off their livestock. When our resources are gone, what we really trust in is suddenly very clear. I heard a podcast this week with someone who had suffered a terrible accident as a teenager, and he said that what suffering had done in his life was just take away, strip away all the normal distractions. All those things that as a teenager had attracted him and kept him from thinking about what was truly important fell away in that moment when he realized his life was changed forever. He was forced to decide what really is 
most important. There may be some of you here so busy with the work of your hands, you almost need God to just yank it all out so that you can remember what, what ground should I be standing on anyways? Am I on rock? Am I building on rock or sand? Maybe you think of the rich young ruler. Jesus tells, this, uh, tells us about this time in Mark 10 where this rich young ruler comes to him and he thinks he is ready to follow Jesus uh, until Jesus asks him to let go of his wealth. And then it becomes clear what he's trusting in, that he is not ready to trust Jesus. And we can only hope that when he went home that day, the Lord did not demand his life from him, or else he would have learned very quickly. His riches are just quicksand. Are you standing on quicksand? And then, of course, finally, there are the priests. Verse 13, right? More description, and then the priests in verse 13. And they are commanded to take off their rich vestments, take off their garments, and put on sackcloth, because they can no longer offer the daily morning and evening sacrifices. That's their job. This, this is the most important part of their job. These sacrifices, morning and night, they were like a daily reminder to the people that the relationship with God was still okay. It was all right for a holy God to be dwelling in their midst. As long as those sacrifices were going, they knew that. But now, it's all gone. It's all ceased. The external religious rites have been taken away, and they are being forced. These priests are being forced to trust only and completely in God alone. Even their religiosity can replace God. And so Joel points out, look, it is taken away from you because in the midst of all your sacrifices, all your symbolism, all your fancy-dancy rites, you have forgotten the very God that you are supposed to rely upon. Have you forgotten about the God you should be relying on in the midst of your life? Maybe you've replaced him with addictions or pleasures, family, your work, or even lots of religious activities. These things can be blessings, but when you turn a blessing into the blesser, you replace, you forget God and the blessing becomes a curse because it takes the place of your relationship with the living and the true God and there is no life apart from God. But you see Joel has a message for God's people because in an act of severe mercy God has taken all these blessings they trusted in away. They're all gone so that maybe, just maybe, they will turn back to the blesser. So let's look at my third point, the solution, the solution. In verse 14, Joel brings us full circle back to these same elders, the inhabitants that he addressed in verse 2. He says, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather these people together, cry out to the Lord. Your lives are in ruins. The sacrificial system is in ruins. There is one thing left to do, one thing. 
You cry out. You cry out. Brethren, if you're in a place where your life feels like a disaster, the rug pulled out from underneath you, this may in fact be the Lord's love being shown to you to call you to trust in Him alone and nothing else. There's a sense in which it doesn't even matter what the secondary cause of the disaster in your life might be. Maybe it's the result of someone sinning against you Maybe your disaster is the result of your sin, like these Israelites here. Maybe, like Job, your disaster seems to have no apparent cause at all. The Bible speaks to all these situations and tells us that the Lord loves us through them. When you're sinned against, hear Joseph in Genesis 50, verse 20, what you intended for evil, God meant for good. When you sin, listen to Proverbs 3.12 or Hebrews 12.6. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And when there is no apparent reason for your disaster, remember Romans 8.28. For those who love God, all things work together for good. If you belong to the Lord, disaster is for your good. Even if you don't know if you belong to the Lord, guess what? Disaster is still for your good because he's giving you a chance to repent. He's prodding you. He's warning you now with a day of disaster that the day of disaster is coming. He's warning you now with a day of disaster that the day of disaster is coming. That's actually where Joel goes here in verse 15. He says, God is doing this for you, for the Israelites. He transitions in verse 15 to speak of the day of the Lord, the day when God will come and judge. And he says, look around, you guys. This day of disaster means the day of disaster is near. You Israelites, you're not just innocent little ducklings what do you think this all means it means the day of the lord is near and as destruction from the almighty it comes our promised people status is not going to save us if we fail to cry out to god now this day of disaster is a warning for all people and so also, church, when disaster strikes in this world, we need to go the same direction. Don't ask with the Jews of Jesus' day in Luke 13. How bad did those people over there sin when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Don't ask that question. Jesus responded to them, No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so I want to challenge all of you who are gathered here today. Look into your own hearts. Most of you call yourselves a Christian. Why? Because your life looks different than those around you? That will not keep you safe on the judgment day. No, the only thing that will keep you safe on that day is if someone took that judgment 
for you, and only one human being is offered to bear the judgment of God in your place. His name is Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead because death could not hold him. His name is Jesus. Is he your king? So that he might also be your savior. Look where Joel goes at the end of the text. Even he turns inward. He's not the prophet, great and mighty, telling everybody, repent or else. He delivers his message, and then he turns to the Lord himself, right? Just as every one of us must do. To you, O Lord, I call. He says in verse 19, even the animals here at the end are calling out to God. Verse 20 says that the beasts are panting for the Lord, for you, for the Lord. Everything has been taken away, and so there is only one place left to turn. My friends, days of disaster are every single one of them, signs of God's patience with you because you are still able to cry out to him. But when the day of disaster comes, there will be no more crying out. There will be no chance for repentance and restoration. So if your idols have been exposed by the hard things of this life, if you have seen how your trust is not placed wholly on Jesus, Cry out to him. Cry out to him now. Hear the warning. Awake from sleep. Lament your loss. Be ashamed of your idols. Put on sackcloth and weep. Gather with God's people. Cry out to him for repentance. He is the only one with the power to grant you the forgiveness that you desperately need. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we cry out to you with Joel. We repent of how we have trusted in things other than you for life, purpose, happiness, meaning. We've replaced you with the gifts you give us. How foolish of us. Father, forgive us. Help us to live our lives in light of their end. For we know that you have set a day when you will judge the world in righteousness by a man you have appointed, Jesus Christ. And will he recognize us on that day? We confess his name now so that he might confess us before you. We know he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, he is the only way of escape from your holy day of destruction. Lord, may the days of disaster that we see now be warnings to us of that final day so that everyone here would turn and cry out to you now while there is time. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray this. Amen. Let's sing our final hymn together, hymn number 691, It is well with my...